Welcome to the Syncast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and I am the host of the Syncast, the podcast for special educational needs and disability. Each week on the podcast, we'll talk about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. In a world where there is less guidance, less money, more demand and continual changes, teachers, senkos, leaders, and in reality, all staff in schools need a way to keep up that fits in with their lives. And that Sencast is that answer. In this episode, we're discussing multi-sensory stories with one of my regular guests, Dr. Susie Nyman. Susie is a regular on the podcast and she is the curriculum manager at the Sixth Form College in Farnborough. Susie simply loves multi-sensory teaching and spends lots of time trying to spread the word. And you've all listened to her on the podcast. It's a lot of fun. So today we're doing multi-sensory stories. The Sencast is created and produced by us here at B Squared, as well as our assessment products and our evidence and parental engagement platform. We also run online training sessions that we call Sencast Sessions. If you go to the Sencast website, you'll find a range of over 100 training sessions. These sessions often feature our amazing podcast guests, but are more formal with slides that you can also download. We run nine live sessions a year where you can join in at the Q&A at the end, or you can just watch whenever you want. We also run free send briefings twice a year so you can keep up to date with all the changes in the world of SEND. And whenever you register or buy a session, that is your session forever. You can find out more about our training sessions and our free send briefings by going to the Sendcast website. Now, let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing multi-sensory stories. I have one of my regular guests, Dr. Susie Nyman Bax, the curriculum manager at the Sixth Form College Farnborough. She is passionate about discovering how children learn and supporting them in ways which will enable them to succeed. And multi-sensory is that. She has provided training to PGCE students at Kingston University and a number of local schools and colleges on teaching strategies. She also delivers talks on multi-sensory techniques around the world. Welcome back, Susie. Thank you very much, Dale. I'm so excited to be here and with the famous Percy Pig. I think we need to crack them open, don't you? Yeah. Start as we mean to continue. There we go. Help yourself. I'll be back in five minutes as I finish eating them. You are all about the multi-sensory world. Multi-sensory stories are about supporting students to read, but also help that imagination, understanding, and also so it helps come out in their writing as well. Because if you have that better understanding, it helps you think about that story, it is going to come out in your writing. It is. And I started off this multi-sensory story about the fir tree, which I'll speak about later. And when my son was first learning to write stories, we actually lived in Woodcote, which means by the woods. And we used to go in and out of the woods all the time. And that first story the teacher asked him to write, he said, well, he won't be very good at it. And I thought, no, he's going to be really good. So I sat down with him. And we had a chat about walking through the forest and what it smelled like, what he could touch, what he could taste, what he could feel. And we drew this massive mind map of information about what he thought it was like walking in that forest. And then we sat together, spoke for 20 minutes. And at the end of 20 minutes, he said, Mom, I'm ready to write something. I thought, hello, 
that's brilliant news. So he wrote his introduction and then he wrote his main paragraphs after that. And he, he wrote a paragraph. Hello, he wrote two. He wrote three. He wrote a page. That boy never wrote a page. And then he said, Mom, I can write some more. I'll write another page if you like. I said, Steady Eddie, don't go too far. So he wrote about a page and a half and it was really good. And at that time, when he was having difficulty writing those stories, I got this key ring of connectives because he kept writing and then, and then, and then. And so we got these connectives and we just sort of slopped them in so that it made it a bit more interesting, the story. And that's why I'm going to talk about multisensory stories today, how to make them exciting. Got lots of props on the table that we're going to share with you. Well, we always start with an empty studio and then Susie arrives with a trolley, <laughs> a trolley full of toys. Yes, I have. And I've got them this morning. I've got some sweet tarts from Mr. Sim's Sweet Shop. We've got a nice wooden flute. I've got some nice tinsel. I've got a Christmas tree. And we've got a goat. She and bought very... a box of her diamonds in. Yes. So there we go. We're ready to rock and roll about the multi-sensory stories. But I think I think that bit about the writing, that story about the woods, because you go into the woods. And to me, that is really important because you can't write a story unless you can kind of see it in your head. And I think going out into the woods in my daughter's primary school, every Friday, the reception year went into the woods. And it really helped build that imagination. They're in the woods, they're looking for things, they're doing things. There was something different every week. And it really fired up that imagination. Yeah. When I went to school at two, we used to go on nature walks every Wednesday afternoon. You know, that's come back in fashion. Yeah. It's now called Forest School. Yes. And it's really funny, you know, what happened over 50 years ago is now coming back in fashion again. And, and there is a school in Oxfordshire called the Treehouse School. And they spent all day on a Friday out, outside teaching. But it is, is, rather than just listening to that story, you're listening to us, but going, I can't picture it. To actually then go out into those woods, when you then read that story or anything about that, you can really picture what it was like. And when, when you're writing it, you kind of, you're doing that journey. So it's a really big, important thing to, to go out and experience. It is. It's all about visualizing and verbalizing. And that's, you know, that's what I did. 50 years ago when I, when I went to um, the PNEU school and we followed this Charlotte Mason's curriculum and her, her motto was, I am, I can, I ought, I will. And that's still relevant today. And to give those children confidence about being able to do that, to be able to write their stories. We used to look at these old master's paintings and, for example, Van Gogh's The Old Sunflowers, where it's a turquoise background. And Van Gogh did it turquoise because he was inviting his friend Paul Gauguin to come and stay with him in his yellow house. And that technique of looking at those pictures and observing it and then narrating about what we've seen is what I've been doing in teaching for the last nearly 30 years, particularly in science, observing something and then talking about it. And I've been doing that in class the last couple of weeks since the start of term and, and the students love it. So that technique of visualizing something and verbalizing something, going into the forest, visualizing what it looks like, smelling, touching, tasting it, and hearing those beautiful sounds of the birds, them being able to come home 
and write about it. Linda Mubell, 35 years ago, did exactly the same thing, and that was observing and narrating. And when I visited them in Notting Hill, I, I visited Christa, Christina Petronis, and she showed me this picture of a snail, and she explained to me that they get the children to look at the snail and see what's in the picture, what do you think the mood is, the background, how many snails, what's the shape, what's the size, what's the movement, what's the colour, the perspective, where do you think it's happening, and what's the sound? And it's this scaffolding that children need to enable them to write stories. In class, it could be key words, but if you actually go on that journey, as you suggested, Jet Dale, and you go through that forest and you pick up the sounds of the birds and you, you smell the damp in there, you see the fungi, it's amazing. And then you can go away and you can write about that story. And it's when you read things like, I went into the forest and it was quiet and you're going, I was in the forest, it was really noisy. Well, that would be weird. And it just helps you again, just having something to compare what they're saying in the story to what um, what was in this is really, really powerful. Thank you. So today I'm going to, first of all, talk about a little bit about multisensory techniques because we're talking about multisensory stories. And then we'll go through a poem in a multisensory way. And then I'll go through my little fir tree story. Okay, so we've spoken before on other podcasts about multisensory techniques, haven't we? Yeah, it's your, it's, it's what you are, isn't it? Yeah, and it is what they, you know, what it says on the tin: multisensory using the five or seven senses. And when you actually use your brain and use all those senses, you fire your brain up more, and people can remember things much, much better. Is that is that the kinesthetic is that, is that yeah. learning through doing type yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. Is that's that's is that part? And I know the whole different people learn it i think i personally think you learn different i think i read it's not you people learn in different ways you actually learn different things in different ways and this and you know this week and last week when i was teaching about the heart we clap the key words i get the heart out of the body that i've got in my classroom we walk through the heart and they'll draw the heart on on their little mini whiteboard and it's really interesting. I said to the students last couple of weeks, I said, your exit ticket today is how and what did you learn? And it was really interesting because each student that walked out of that room learned and picked that information up in a completely different way. It's a bit, I don't remember much, but I always remember it's try before buy. Yes, that's right. The tricuspid valve and the bicuspid valve. That's right. So, yeah, they remember that. It's really I think it's really, really useful to walk the walk and talk the talk, and they then remember it better. I've been getting the balloons out, to be honest, and and I've been giving them all balloons to squeeze when we're doing the, the heart, and they've quite enjoyed that. And then a couple of days ago, I, I got the balloons out again, and I said, would you want to come and play with the balloons again? We're going to model something else. And I said, actually, it makes my hands smell of rubber. It's a really funny well, I said, oh, we'll get the Play-Doh out then. So we got the Play-Doh out and we've got strawberry Play-Doh and apple Play-Doh and, and stuff like that. And so they enjoyed using that. And you can't keep using the same thing. You have to switch it up. Now, what I, what I love is when you hear Susie talking about balloons and Play-Doh, you're probably in your head picturing young children, aren't you? Because when you hear those words, you think young children. But how old are your students? 17 and 18, because I just teach the upper six. But they love it and they remember it. That's the thing is there are things which are childish. 
Yeah. So there are certain things which are childish and they will not take kindly to. But you also, you, as it is, you want to enter a retro zone of, mm. oh, I used to remember playing with that, so it's yes. fine. But also, that multi-century is an all-age thing. It's not something you just stops because we're moving out to play and we need to just look at books. Mm. It can be done at any age. And it's always interesting because although I know you teach in a college, I'm hearing you mention plasticine and Play-Doh and all that sort of stuff in my head. I go to little children playing with it and mm. I have to stop and say, no. 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds are doing this. Yeah, they do get the Play-Doh. And we were doing arteries and veins this week, and I just made an artery out of a piece of Play-Doh, a red one for, for an artery and a vein. It was blue. And I passed it round on a whiteboard like I was passing round a plate. And you suddenly see these students suddenly understanding what I'm talking about. That might be one way they understand. I've got another girl in the class that does whitewater canoeing. And I said, well, an artery is like going down a whitewater river because the water's flowing fast, the blood's flowing fast in pulses. And a vein is like going down the Basingstoke Canal, which is local, obviously, at Mitchell. And what do you have in the canal? And then I said, it starts with an L and rhymes with blocks. And they go, locks. And I go, yes. And those locks are like valves, valves prevent the backflow of blood. And so they can then visualise that. They've yes. got it. And that's the thing. I think I call it context- contextualization. You're taking, mm-hmm. like, here's a logic, here's something you do. If I put this in your world, you'll get it. It's the relatability. Yeah. And, and it's nice because if you find their world, they'll remember it. Definitely. Yeah. And what I do do as well is I do this, I call it onion teaching. I start with the main concept. I'll, I'll give the key words. And then I'll explain, maybe they come from Greek or Latin, saying where those words come from. And so they can understand the words, remember the words, spell the words, be confident with those words, and then show them the diagram and show them where the, where the, what the structures are, what's their function, and then different ways of remembering that, either with Play-Doh or with balloons. We've used a lot of balloons in the last couple of weeks, to be honest or walk through the heart, or clap, or sing it, and they get it. They get it. By the time they walk out that room, they've got it, which is really nice to see. And we pass practice passing some questions too. Now, when we're talking about here reading and comprehension, it was Linda Moo Bell that noticed when Nancy Bella was actually working with a boy called Alan, he said, I see movies in my head. And I think if the children can see those movies in their head, remember it through that video you've been making with them in class, they'll remember it a lot better. And they say at Limda Bell that the emphasis on associating language with multisensory mater- mental images is a direct application of dual coding. And so we talk a lot about dual coding, using words and pictures. And so it's really good to get that language and set up mental images, either as a mind map or acting out in class and using different multisensory techniques. And it's interesting. One thing I always find is you see pictures of elephants as a child, but you often see them completely on their own. And we were going to Chester Zoo with my girls, and I sat there and went, Hang on, they've never seen an elephant. Really? And they, they were, they were, I don't know, five or six type of things. So they were quite young, but they'd never seen an elephant. I went, how big's an elephant? Show me with your hand. And they kind of showed it like a large dog. 
It's like it's going to be an elephant is going to be shorter than them. So if you think an elephant is like a large dog, and you hear the phrase "there's an elephant charging towards me," it's like, well, oh, step out of the way. It's like a dog. And then when they walk around the corner and see this big elephant, and now they read an elephant charging towards me, it paints a very different picture. So sometimes it's having big context in that picture. So if you see an elephant on its own, it's like, okay, it's an elephant. If you see an elephant next to a person, you're like, wow, that's big. Yeah, and I think with trees, imagining how big those trees are. You know, we, we used to go around an arboretum on the way to Oxford. And I used to take a tape measure with my son and he had no idea about the size of the diameter and the circumference of those tree trunks because they were enormous. And he used to run around the arboretum with his tape measure going, oh, mom, I think this one's bigger. I think this one's bigger. And he'd run around with his tape measure and he'd think it was great. But you can calculate, can't you, the height of trees by knowing the angle and the distance from the tree and Pythagoras and you can actually work out. The height of that tree, we never actually did the maths. He just liked to run around with his tape measure. But it was really interesting because we went out with another girl who was autistic and she liked doing it as well. So they got on like a house on fire, measuring these tree trunks up at Streetly. We went up there and measured the tree trunks at the top of the hill. That's the thing is it's finding the largest and understanding that if I find the largest, I might have found the oldest. Mm. Is, is that's something interesting about that. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, although when you're literally going, if I said to a child, go measure radiators. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be so exciting. But somehow finding a tree, they, they get that, that that tree is really old and there's something they understand about that yeah. that makes it finding that actually this tree is really old. Mm. This, is, this tree was like born before your grandparents. And that, that sort of... Wow. And it does, even at a young age, that, that someone telling you that this tree is older than that, you're going, but it's a tree. Wow. And then you're going, what has it seen? Mm. Much more interesting than a radiator. Oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, in the Sequoia National Park, they've got trees where cars can drive through, haven't they? Yes. That they're so big. And there's a tree in Queen Elizabeth Park that they put ribbons on in Farnborough because they were putting a pipeline and the locals wanted to save this tree. So they, they all came and put ribbons on the tree to identify, please don't chop that one down. And it's a beautiful tree. You have to go down there, Dan, and see it. It's not far away. I might no, do. Yeah, pop down. But no, yeah, I do think um, there's a lot around um, seeing and doing and reading and understanding. It's all linked. Mm. But some children find difficulty reading, so they might have to use assistive technology. And you can use a scanning pen or an OrCam read pen. You could also use a screen reader. If you have the book on the screen, you could use Caliber. And if you're going to type up that work, you could use Dictate. Once you've written your work, you can use Read Aloud or voice typing in Google Docs. But what I think is really useful is knowing that you can use RNIB Bookshare. And I will speak about that in a couple of minutes, RNIB Bookshare, because it's a valuable resource, RNIB Bookshare, that not many people know about. And if you're interested in scanner pens, if you haven't seen it, it's worth really just going on YouTube, 
search for scanning pen and watch a video of them being used because mm. that's what's really cool about this tech is they are so simple. Mm. It's not you doing it with the child. The child can do it themselves and they can plug headphones into a pair of scanning pens. So although mm. it's reading aloud, it's reading aloud to them. Mm. And they are really, really cool. And you're really removing a big barrier of that decoding the words to allow that child to hear and access that same um, text. Yeah, and the exam reader pen can be used for access arrangements, which is really good. It makes that person independent. So once they've left school, if they have their own scanning pen, they can go to university and carry on using it. And that assistive technology is any item piece of equipment, software program or product system that's used to increase, maintain or improve the functional capabilities of persons with disabilities. And Miles Pilling asked if he could come to the Sixth Form College and make a video about the power of assistive technology. And in that, our college showcases, as well as other schools and colleges, showcases some of the assistive technology that we currently use. I can think of one child and their early journey in education was very much dictated by their behaviour within the classroom. They were actually unable to access the curriculum or put any output because of the barriers that they had. When I was growing up, because I didn't have the assistive technology, I always thought, you're not smart, you're not as clever as other people. When I moved to secondary school, I kind of just went, oh, you're fine. But I wasn't really fine. Using assistive technologies is valuable for all, but it's vital for some. The technology that we introduce is available to everybody across a college of nearly 5,000 students. There's not always going to be someone there to read for them or to write for them. This is where our assistive technologies come in to help them to do that for themselves. If it's good inclusion for some, it's, it's good inclusion for all. I feel that there's been fantastic opportunities to be inspired by the work of others out there. This technology has allowed everyone to achieve and there's then also no stigma around it. That child's behaviour significantly changed from the moment we introduced the technology for them. I believe it's very important for the students to actually have the knowledge of the programme. It allows me to do my homework faster and in greater detail. So it's definitely helped being able to express what I want to write about. And it's made writing a lot easier and a lot neater. It was a way for me to focus on my work. When you use it, it just makes you a lot happier. It's definitely boosted my confidence so much. It's not just uh, people with dyslexia, it's everybody that needs it. We're enabling our future generation to all be at the same level and have the same access. Using assistive technology for reading in the classroom is great for teachers because it's inclusive and incredibly adaptive. Particularly a scanning pen, people won't really notice you're using a scanning pen. They might just think it's a normal pen. It makes reading interactive and can be a motivational tool. It can be 
a freely, readily available resource. So I know in Canada that they just have boxes of these things in the room. It's assistive, assistive technology. And then the students just go to the box and choose whatever they want to use. It's useful for children with reading disabilities, such as dyslexia, SPLDs, helping them to work alongside their peers, creating a level playing field, which is what Jack Churchill talks about. What's interesting is my daughter can read. She just doesn't like it. She'd rather I read it and read it out to her. And it's just so I can't get her to read, but I she'll happily listen to me reading three chapters of a large book and sit there, not on her phone, sit there listening. But she won't read it herself. And I, I, I haven't worked it out, can't work it out. Why? We have discussions around it. She's like, I just don't know. But it's, again, if she had that scanning pen, it, it would make that independent. She wouldn't be relying on me. The scanning pen and anything like that can read the books to her. Mm. Or Calibre. They have audio books, don't they? So she could use that. I mean, it's useful. It's also useful for students because they can assimilate the text and boost their reading to reach their potential. But to be effective, it needs to be embedded within high quality instruction. It's no use being given the kit if you're not shown how to use it. No. And that assistive technology, as I said before, helps level the academic playing field for students with dyslexia or SPLDs. But I think the one thing that a lot of people don't know about is our NIB Bookshare. Can we point me back? I just want to say with this technology is there's no point in having that scanning pen mm. for English lessons only. That's right. In reality, that scanning pen should be with them 24-7. Because mm. if it's with you 24-7, you learn to really embed it. Yeah. You learn to, I can just, it's on me, I can use it. If you're only using it for a couple of hours a week, it's not in your head going to be something you reach for. So with that assistive technology, it's got to be something they can access as much as possible. Yeah, and the scanning pen can be used as a text reader or a dictionary. You know, quite often students will be reading something in class and what on earth does that mean? The white C pen can be used as a dictionary in an exam. The exam reader, you can't use the dictionary function. You can scan to files, you can stand, scan something and use it as a digital bridge, you can use it as a recorder. So there's lots and lots of different functions you can use there with a scanning pen. Back to the RNIB Bookshare, because this is yeah. cool. So the RNIB Bookshare is a really good website whereby you can link up to the RNIB Bookshare through your school and be assigned an account. And what happens is you can then search up for the current book that you are reading or using for your studies. That book can then be downloaded as an ebook, a daisy book, or that you can get the PDF. Sometimes you can get the Word file. What's really good about that is we've got a student with visual impairment, and so we can get the Word file of the textbook, and then we can, you know, blow it up to size 18 or 20, whatever is most comfortable for that student, and then print out that chapter of the textbook in that font so that she's able to access it and read it. Alternatively, if you've got the PDF, you can read it on a large computer screen so it's comfortable for her eyes. But it's not only for visually impaired people. The RNIB Bookshare can be for other disabilities 
for example, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and also autism. So that's really, really useful. I think once, once you have a digital, there is so much you can do because you can highlight, you can zoom, you can increase the text size, you can go into text-to-speech. There's so many things you can do. You're not limited to this is the side of the text, this is it. Mm. You're removing so many barriers and you can make it much more suitable to that child. Yeah, and, and so once you've got that PDF, you might use Dolphin Easy Reader to read it. You might put that PDF through Text Help Read and Write. Um, and then you can listen to that book. But in Text Help Read and Write, it, it will then identify the word as it's reading it in yellow. And so you can see what those words are as you're reading it on the screen, which is really, really good. I've spoken before about Calibre Audio. It's a national charity providing collection of over 15,000 free audiobooks for anyone who finds it difficult to read print. And you can sign up for that. If you're dyslexic, it's free. So that's really good. It's free. R&IB Bookshare, they've got nearly a million books. So that's really useful too. There's another one called um, Listening Books, which you can, they're all audiobooks. So I think I like there's lots of different ways and it's important to remember it's the content they need to access, not the actual book. It's the content that's important, not, mm. not how it is accessed. Mm. If we've got that book and we want to read it or we've produced some text, we can use in Microsoft Word or Microsoft Office, Microsoft Immersive Reader. And for this, you can create a reading experience that promotes accessibility and comprehension for learners of all ages and abilities with learning with the Learning Tools Immersive Reader. I'll be using that further down when we're reading the poem in the podcast. What I love about Microsoft is those accessibility tools, all these immersive readers is getting better every week. It is phenomenal. So you can now turn on live captions in Teams meetings. Mm. Wow. Because you can use live captions in PowerPoint. So I yeah. know that Aaron's been using that. We, uh, my colleague John showed it up in Teams. And it's not the best if you start using all the SEN acronyms. It starts to panic. Mm. But as long as you stay away from all those acronyms, it does really well. And it is a way that if actually, and there's lots of kids who seem to watch films these days with subtitles mm. on. So it's helping them read. So again, if it just helps that person by hitting that button and turning it on, it's more inclusive. Yeah, brilliant. So here, as my theme today is the forest, we've got reading a poem, walk through the forest. And this poem is um, really interesting and you can read it using immersive reader. So I will just read the first couple of lines and you can listen to it. Green moss, green light, green grass, a bird's flight, shadows lurking, the air so fresh and sweet. Tree after tree you're passing, stones crunched beneath your feet. Bushes wherever you go, above you the leaves rustle and sublime. Your gaze is jumping to and fro, longing to see everything at the same time. In the trees, the bird's song sounds. Now, if you put that through Immersive Reader, then it would read it to you slowly. You can increase the speed 
But also when you use immersive reader, it will give you pictures if you hover over the word. So green moss, it will give you a picture of the green colour and also the moss, which is really good. And so if a student finds difficulty with one of the words that they're reading, it will show you a picture of that word or image, which is really, really helpful. Hi, I'm Mike. Today, I'm going to demonstrate how you can improve reading skills with Microsoft Learning Tools. To get started, go to office.com and sign into your Office 365 education account. Click on Word to open a Word document, and now go to the View tab and click on the Immersive Reader. You'll see all of the page is reducing distractions, and I can really focus on the text. When you press the play button, the Amazon rainforest, you hear the text read aloud and you see the words highlighted, you can easily follow along. You can increase and decrease voice speed really easily. You can increase the font size. You can also increase the spacing, which is a proven technique to help reduce visual crowding. You also can click on a page color that gives better contrast and can make it easier to see the letters. Now you can turn the syllables on as well and break them down with a single click. I can highlight the different parts of speech like nouns, verbs, adjectives, and adverbs. Now reading rulers are something that teachers have used for a long time for focus. And with a single click here, I can turn on line focus and really give that extra focus for students. With the picture dictionary, I can click on a single word and see a picture of that and also play it back to have that multi-sensory processing, a great tool for reading comprehension. So learning tools are available in OneNote, Outlook, Office Lens and Edge as part of Office 365 in Education, which is free for you teachers and students. Go check it out. By the way, I haven't had a Percy Pig yet. I think I better have one because, you know, he's, he is very in fashion. There Percy Pig is very in fashion. I've had a few. Mm. I've been sneaking them away while you're talking. It's great. You talk so much, I get to eat all the Percy Pigs. So multi-sensory stories. Sensory stories pair simple, fun narratives incorporating multi-sensory experiences associated with each part to help children engage with the story. Teachers often repetitively use the same sensory story to give the children opportunities to build up a recognition of the structure and to begin to anticipate different parts. Sensory stories from children's books can be used with any child every day. And this will help them develop wonderful communication skills. Using multisensory learning makes teaching inclusive, using different sensory learning styles and helps activate different processes in the child's brain and they become more involved and interested in their learning. So I was asked by BBC Bite Size to talk about five activities you could do with your children at home during COVID. So I've just put a few examples of this in talk today in the podcast today. So for multisensory learning, you might use food and the food stimulates dyslexic students' sense of sight, smell, touch and taste. It helps dyslexic children to absorb and process information in a retainable way because they are doing. Not only that, the food might look like something. So broccoli looks like um, the lungs. If you chop a carrot, it looks like eyes. You won't believe this. From the allotment on Monday, we had a cucumber that looked like a stomach. I wondered where you were going then. And um, also, a sweet potato looks like a pancreas. There we go. 
Also, you can you might be able to use pipe cleaners, and they stimulate the dyslexic student's sense of sight and touch. Help dyslexic children to absorb and process information in a retainable way because they are doing. I've used pipe cleaners before to maybe make chromosomes, but also you can do a nephron in the kidney with all different pipe cleaners. It wouldn't be today unless multi sorry. Multisensory teaching wouldn't be to debt. Sorry, Dale. <laughs> wouldn't be where it is today. Thank you. Without Mul Susie Neumann. <laughs> Multisensory teaching in my classroom wouldn't be the same without my puppets. Okay, we've got 30 along the top shelf. There are multisensory aids to help increase a child's attention and concentration, as well as encouraging imaginative play. They're engaging and motivating children by promoting talk involving scientific reasoning and storytelling with reluctant speakers. And they help dyslexic children to absorb and process information in a retainable way because they are doing, which is what you spoke about earlier. We use the puppets for communication skills and also for diagnosing and treating conditions. This puppet has no legs. What do you think is wrong with him? Mm. <laughs> and then we've got... Post-it notes, really good for sequencing things. They help dyslexic children visually and kinesthetically by manipulating the child's fine motor skills. They help dyslexic children to absorb and process information in a retainable way because they're doing. And they help dyslexic children immensely with spelling and sequencing. And it was really interesting the last two weeks, introducing these key scientific terminology, how quite a few of the students in the class couldn't spell certain words. And so I put the words on the board in different colours and then they could see it and they could see how to spell it. They really enjoyed using red paper and blue paper to sequence the blood flow through the heart. They said that really, really helped. And so they could use post-it notes for anything, sequencing, breaking down words in different colours. They really enjoyed using them. I think it's important that words give us information, but words often don't somehow link so artery and vein mm. but red and blue is much clearer in your head yes. red and blue and i think if we think and i don't think before but going to toilets you look for the man and woman sign wherever you are you're looking for it and you see you're not looking for the word toilets you're looking for those two pictures of a woman and a man next to each other and you know that's going to be the toilets mm. and everything we do we have these symbols we look for logos every brand mm. has a logo we all know the golden arches or the starbucks symbol Mm. We all go, ah, coffee, or ah, mm. Big Mac. Mm. Uh, other burgers are available. But we know these images, these logos. And I went on this cool trip with my daughter to Jaguar's factory. Mm -hmm. And they have different sized nuts and bolts. And they all have these product numbers. Mm. But they kept putting the wrong ones in the wrong thing, which would stop the entire assembly line. Wow. And what they realized is people were struggling to read the numbers. So what they did is they just changed from numbers to symbols. So this thing here where you put all the nuts in, triangle. Oh, wow. Is this is there a triangle on this bag? No, well, not these ones. Is there a triangle on this bag? Yes, these triangle ones go in the triangle. It's so simple. Yeah, we're all adults, but triangle to triangle is simpler at every level. If I'm having a bad day, I can do triangle to triangle. Mm. <laughs> Everyone can do triangle to triangle, and, it, and it, it, it saved them money as as a company because that entire production line 
wasn't stopping because one person misread a number and put the wrong nuts in the wrong chute, which then had to be completely emptied before any car could pass that point. Well, you see, that story reminds me of physics at school. And the physics teacher was annoyed with one of the girls. She hadn't done homework. And she said, right, your punishment is to put all these resistances back in the right box. So she did, but she was colorblind. <laughs> so the teacher had to do it all over again. Oh, she got the technician to do it. So, well, for those who don't yeah. get that, resistors have little things with colored bands and the yes. co- every color and the combination of colors has a different value. Yeah. So if you can't understand the colors, you're going to get that completely wrong. <laughs> that's right. And that's another go. thing where because I've done, I've understood yeah. and I could picture. Yeah. If no one has ever used a resistor, they haven't got that visual of that wire with a little weird, I'm going to say little toilet roll, but squished in the middle type shape on the wire mm. with colored bands around. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's again. So even as adults, if we haven't experienced someone, someone's telling us a story, we're not going to tie in. It's the same with children. And I think even just talk about the forest, and we've done a lot of the forest, but there's mm. a lot of things about the outside world. But if you live in the center of a city and you have never gone into the woods, and I know, I know children in our local area that, that people, premium children, had never left Bracknell town. Mm. Mm. So when they're talking about it, they're going, they have no idea. They've not been on a train anywhere or a bus anywhere or in a car anywhere. They've never left Bracknell. So this whole world was inaccessible to them. And so with the multi-century, by going and doing, and it, it things. So when you talk about green moss, if you've never been somewhere where there's moss. You won't understand what moss is. So it's important to have that, that visual, that knowledge, that understanding to really understand the story. Mm. So I'm going to read the story now. I picked up this book in Costco. This is a place that Dale frequents. Not that often. We just seem to bump into each other there. Yes. One day I went into Costco in COVID and this very tall man with a beard and a mask stood over my trolley and said, there's no Percy Pigs in there, Susie. And I thought, who is this chap? And then I realised it was Dale. So that's my link with Dale and Costco. For those who know me, generally know that if I know you, I will generally try and find an interesting way to say hello. It's just a bit more interesting than just saying, hello, Susie, how are you? So the book I picked up is A World Full of Nature Stories, 50 Folk Tales and Legends. I've got the book in front of me. It's a rich resource that collects folk tales from homes and legends and myths from distant lands to commemorate the animals, plants, and the changing seasons that make the planet Earth so beautiful. The folk tales and fables in this book will capture imaginations and take readers on a journey all around the world. And I wrote to the publisher in order to get permission to use this book in podcasts and talks. The story is called The Little Fir Tree. and It's like one of these Aesop fables. It has a hidden meaning. So what I want today is to make this story multisensory. You won't believe it, but actually I have a Christmas tree in the studio today. And we are still recording in September and Susie turns up to the studio with a Christmas tree as 
Susie does, as Susie is. Um, and what I love about this book is just looking at the cover, and we're not doing a book review, but I love the fact there's lots of visuals on the front. So it's not just sometimes books are just quite bland. I love it. There's lots of visuals on the front, and throughout the, the book, it is very, very, lots of visuals go along the stories, which is really nice. Again, it helps you if you haven't experienced that story, if you haven't know, it, it helps set that scene in your head. I'm somebody who kind of watches, as I read a book, I see a film in my head. And I know it's interesting is some people do that. Some people have nothing going on in their head visually when they read books. But for me, that sort of thing helps me set the scene, helps me get access that book and know, right, okay, that's the visuals, off we go. And I've got a story that I can watch in my head. And I just go back to Linda Boo Bell saying it's good for those children to make those movies in their head when they're reading a book, then they can understand it and remember it much better. But to do that, you have to have that understanding. So mm. I was walking through the moss and you go, that's going to be quiet. And I got to the stones, it's going to get noisy. And you have to have that understanding by doing. You do. You do have to do that. And that's why this multi-sensory story will help people in the future to be able to say, tell the story, remember the story, but then at the end, write your own story. So here's the story for you, ladies and gentlemen. The little fir tree. In the middle of the forest stood a little fir tree whose dark green leaves were small and sharp as needles. So I've been out for a walk with a dog this morning and I've picked up this fir tree branch, if you like, and I know it's a fir tree because I spoke to the conifer expert at Wisley Gardens to make sure I was picking the right one. But as you're talking about that fir tree and you're walking through that forest with that child, you can look at what are the other leaves around him. It could be an ivy. And what's interesting is that the ranger at Frimley Park told me that the shape of those ivy leaves change as they use their energy and they go up the tree. You might see a maple leaf if you're in Canada. You might see a horse chestnut. At the moment, the boys are running around collecting all the conkers. You might see an oak tree and you might see the squirrels running up collecting the acorns and my dog chasing the squirrels in the park as it sees one running up the tree. You might see some holly, for example, there's a holly leaf there. Or you might see a sweet chestnut and they're dropping at the moment. And do you remember at Christmas you used to have those sweet chestnuts and chestnuts by the fire and you cook them just remind you of Christmas. So apart from the fir tree, you could get the children to walk around and then touch, don't taste, smell, feel those leaves and they can describe that in their stories. And also if you're like Susie, if you can't go out, you can bring that into the classroom. So she literally has a bag of leaves that she can pass around and you also have all the different leaves and there's a whole conversation you can have around that as well, why mm. they're all different back to the story. How unkind of Mother Nature to give me such small, stiff leaves, sighed the little fir tree one day. I wish I had leaves of gold. Then I'll outshine all the other trees in the forest. Next morning, when the bright rays of the sun shone down the forest, they turned the leaves of the fir tree into pure gold. Hello, I've got gold tinsel here. So I'm going to take this gold tinsel and I'm going to put it on my fir tree. Susie has bought tinsel brand new in September. There we go. Dazzling little fir tree gleamed with pride. 
and the other trees admired his beauty. Presently, a traveller came along the forest path. Really effective footsteps. <laughs> so that is Sweet Tart's Mini Chewy Mixed Fruit from Mr. Sim's Sweet Shop. He gazed in wonder at the golden tree. What luck, he cried. Now I shall never have to do a day's work again. And he emptied his bag and started filling it with those golden leaves, picking everyone up until the branches were bare. The little fir tree felt miserable. If only I had leaves that were less valuable, he sighed, then they wouldn't be stolen. He noticed a bottle lying on the grass, which the traveller had taken out of his bag. That was my bottle of water. Leaves of glass will be beautiful, said the little fir tree. Nobody could steal those. I wish I had leaves of glass. That night, when the silvery moonbeam shone down on the forest, they adorned the little fir tree with leaves of glass. We have more tinsel. And every time she's decorating the tree with tinsel, so it is now gold, it's now silver. There we go. In the morning, the little fir tree glittered and sparkled like a crystal chandelier, and the other trees admired the beauty. But that night, there was a storm. Oh, I've got a wooden flute here. Wait a second. Strong wind shook the forest, shattering the little fir tree's glass leaves, which fell like a shower of diamonds on the forest floor. There's my diamonds on the forest floor. I got these from the local charity shop, actually. They just happened to be in there. Dealing in diamonds. Yeah. Um, there we go. The little fir tree felt dejected. If only I had leaves that weren't so fragile, he asked, then they wouldn't have broken. He looked around at the soft green leaves still hanging on the branches, the small trees around him. Those leaves haven't been stolen or broken, he said, and they've survived the storm. I wish I had soft green leaves like the other trees. That night, the gentle rain fell on the bare branches of the little fir tree. That's my rainmaker. I picked that up from a charity shop in Frimley. You know, the charity shops actually save me all this stuff now. <laughs> I tell them what I'm looking out for, such as a penguin, and they'll look out for it and let me know when one's arrived in the charity shop. So I'm going to go back to the story. That night, the gentle rain 
fell on the bare branches of the little fir tree and by morning they were covered in soft green leaves. The little fir tree displayed its new leaves proudly and when the breeze blew through the forest, the other trees admired how prettily they danced. I'm just asking Dale for another book that actually has sounds in it. And in this, we've got a rustling leaf sound. There you go. That sounds a bit like wind as well. But the soft green leaves attracted the attention of a goat. Oh, hello. Here's the goat. I've got a little goat here who came wondering why. Those look good to eat, he thought. And they were low enough to reach, not like the leaves of the tall tree. So the goat ate up every leaf on the little fir tree's branches until there were none left. The little fir tree was broken hearted. If only I had leaves that weren't tasty, he sighed. Then they wouldn't have been eaten. He thought that his old dark leaves, small and sharp, as needles, nobody ever stole them, No, nothing broke them, and they were never eaten by anyone. What a fool I've been, he said. My old leaves were the best of all. I wish I could have them back again. Over the following weeks, the leaves on the other trees turned yellow, red, gold and brown, and then fell from the branches on the forest floor. But the little fir tree grew new leaves, small, stiff and sharp as needles. Then winter came and one night it snowed. I've got now some white tinsel. <clears throat> That's going on the tree. In the morning. The little fir tree's evergreen leaves were dressed in white and glistened like stardust. I am beautiful just being myself, said the little fir tree, happy at last. And all the other trees of the forest agreed. So the moral of the story is, be yourself. I, I like this because I get to sit there and I get to listen to the story. I get to look at the tree. And that's the thing is just having the tree here, even though I'm an adult. I sit there and look at the tree and it helps me get myself into that mode of being in the forest and things like that. Whereas if you just read that without any visuals, because I've got visuals, you've got, the, you've got all the sounds, it yeah. just brings it to life. And that's the end of the story, Dale. <laughs> and the other book you had, Peter's Nature Walk, which is a Peter Rabbit book. I remember those with my kids and I remember we had ones where there's like a soundboard on the right and as you read the story it told you which sound to push and it was really quite fun because you'd be going through the story and it would say and thomas the tank engine blew his whistle and there'd be a whistle button and you'd have to hit the correct button on the right and it would blow his whistle and it was really nice because it just helped you get into that story and i think it does you know we've got a couple of others here in the peter rabbit book bees And it takes you to another place in the summer. I remember last summer walking in the lavender fields near Alton. Here's the crickets. Mm. 
And that reminds me of being abroad on holiday and at night when you're walking around in the dusk and you hear the crickets. You might hear the robin. Um, or even, I know when I lived in Woodcote, we used to hear the owls every morning at night. And here's my dog's favourite squirrels rummaging about. She chases up the trees. That's the thing is, unless you've been to the park, unless you've been down to the woods, unless you've lived somewhere out in the country, those noises you would have never heard. So you'll read a story that an owl hooted. It's like, well, what's that sound like? And I know with your children, the first time they hear the owl at night, they go, what is that? It's like, that's an owl. They're going, oh, wow. And that's the thing. It's reading a story where you have the owl hooted and you're going, I have no idea what that sounds like. And it's just having those sounds and even just watching little video clips to help set that scene and layer it all in their head really, really helps. And if they don't have that and they're writing really simple stories, it's because they're not having that thing all layered on top in what they're understanding. So it's not going to come out in their writing. Yeah, and it's their experience, isn't it? Yeah. And they're relating it to their own experience. So now... The children can write their own story. What you need to do is give them keywords. Keywords from the Little Fir Tree book or story, such as forest, fir tree, needles, leaves, branches, mother nature, gold, dazzling, gleaming, traveller, golden, miserable, glass, beautiful, crystal chandelier, shower diamonds. Fragile, broken, survive, breeze, prettily danced, attracted, yellow, red, gold, brown, snow, stardust, beautiful, and dressed. When Julia Clouter and I went up to the Yorkshire Dyslexia Festival, we put keywords on leaves and then we hung them on washing lines. And the children then took the leaves that they wanted to use in their story and they took photographs of them. And then we had a tree on the wall and they put these leaves on the tree, took a photo of the tree and created these amazing stories. And it's that scaffolding that you need to give them. You need to give them the key words and give them a way of writing that story using their own experiences. And they'll write something that's absolutely amazing. What I found with my son was he didn't know how to start. So we would give him sentence starters. The forest air was cool and smelt like damp moss, rain on wet tree trunks. The forest was cold with a rustle of pine trees against one another's, but rather faint. She entered the forest and the gloomy darkness was eerie, but she felt safe. The forest was clothed in a green blanket of moss. Connectives I've mentioned before. You could write these out and put them on a key ring and then flip round the key ring as you're using them. 
here's a few to think about quietly, without warning, quickly, soon, without after hesitation. So consequently, unexpectedly, when out of the blue, suddenly, then, though, eventually, if, as, whenever, which, whilst, whereas, although, and then, while once, or as soon as, and even though, finally, whenever, since, previously, immediately, next. It's quite nice to have a bank of those connectives that the child can use to enrich that story and make it just sound absolutely amazing. Having that list in front of you and having Susie read them is very different. Can you just read next suddenly when you're going, but you quickly and then anticipation and you're literally help, you're setting the tone of a sentence, which is helping them change that story. And that's the thing is, is having a list of words, but kind of hearing them in a use makes you go, oh, I like that one. I, I want it to sound like that. That's what I'm looking for. And it helps them. So again, it's that multi-sensory, not just reading, you're hearing and it's setting the tone. Yeah, I think it's good. And, you know, you might have children that are visually impaired and so they might want to listen to the list of words as well. Yeah, so do it in lots and lots of different ways. What you might like to do is, when you're creating your story, is to draw a picture or a cartoon. And Rossi Stone has a company where whereby he creates cartoons of interesting topics such as mental health or he's got some special deco comics, which have lots and lots of different subjects within them, history, science, maths, etc., and shows you how to remember things through cartoons. So that's another way you could do it. When we went to the Yorkshire Dyslexia Festival, there was a boy in the audience who drew a picture of what he thought the forest was like, and he stood up at the front and he told his story just looking at the picture, which was amazing. And when my son was first tested for dyslexia, the lady that was doing the testing didn't say, right, go down, sit there and write a story. She said, I want you to um, write a story about the jungle. She said, draw a picture first. And she said he wrote a really beautiful story. Because sometimes children need to have a, a different way in to be able to write that story. They need the scaffolding, but you need to find the way that they can work that they can then excel and showcase their wonderful imagination. Yeah, I think visuals is always good. Is that the book which I hated with my daughter reading was You Choose, which was Where Do You Want to Go on Holiday? And it is, uh, it's like a cartoon drawing of absolutely every holiday destiny you should possibly want, including a moon base. <laughs> and so you'd end up, which is why she loved it, because she knew it wasn't a 15-minute book. It was an hour-long book because you discuss every page. Mm. And every, oh, do you remember when we were on holiday here? And off that conversation went. So having that visuals just really drove that conversation. So it's really important. If they are struggling to write, it's, it's do they have that picture in their mind that they're trying to recreate with their hand? And having stuff like those that you choose, which was what do you want to eat, what do you want to wear, what, what, what tra transport, it was just those pictures with every transport possible. Mm. And you go, I'm going to go on a horse. Mm. Now, where would you leave it? 
And it's like, again, you're seeing the horse, it connects it. So to me, yeah, visuals are really, really big. If you haven't experienced it, visuals are great. But even if you have experienced it, it might not be fresh in your mind. And that visual will just take you back to, oh, yeah, I went somewhere like that. Oh, yeah, and it was really cool because of visuals are really good prompts. I think so. So now you can construct your forest story. My first point is talk for writing. Have a chat about it like I did with my son. We sat around the table and talked, what's it like walking through that forest? What can you smell? What can you touch? What can you taste? Imaginative stories. The type of forest that you're going to talk about, talk about your five senses and the poisonous things. It could be a tropical forest. It could be a tropical rainforest. It, it could be a pine forest. Which one are you going to talk about? Build up that vocabulary together. What are those words you're going to use? Are there any characters in the story? Imagine who you could be, a heroine or a hero. A good story needs to have roots, so give it some depth. Go and collect those leaves, as I did this morning walking the dog. Collect those leaves, then you can talk about them. You can feel them. You can smell them. Touch them. If unable to read words, use a scanning pen or an Orcam Learn pen. Think and develop that story time. Draw a picture, as I said before. Use an audio file to tell the story into your phone. You might want to do Dictate. Use Dictate in Microsoft. You might like to do voice typing in Google Docs. Use voice-activated software to convert that audio file into text. Take photos. Incorporate those photos into your story. Any child to play or say the story, they might like to do it with a group. And reward that child with, I've put random sweets, but reward that child with something for doing a really good story. It might be a sticker. You know, it might be anything. You know, we used to have charts at school. If you did something well, you got a stick and then, you got a cross and whatever by the end of the week, how many sticks and crosses have you got? I know some people use pasta jars, don't they? My son had a, a caterpillar and if he read a story, he got 20p. And we had this long caterpillar and by the end of the week, he would count up all his 20 pences and then he might go to the sweet shop saying, buy some sweets. So yeah, have those rewards for the children. So now, Dale, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview of what we've talked about today. I, I thought you were going to ask me to make up a story, and I'm quite glad you didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have no props. Oh, we can borrow mine and, and <laughs> use Percy Pig if you like. So today we've spoken about the history. You know, when I went to school and we used to do nature walks on a Wednesday afternoon, and it's now called Forest School, and how... We used to visualise and verbalise things. So we would see old masters and we'd talk about them, visualise those old masters and verbalise them or observe and narrate. I've read the poem to you and I put my props in and, and then we spoke about immersive reader. Yeah, and, and Tony's inserted the immersive reader information there. We've done the multi-sensory little fir tree story, which I think Dale enjoyed because he kept laughing and his, his shoulders were shaking, which is always what I aim to do when I come here. The key words, sentence starters and connectives, and now I've said, write your own story. 
So, Dale, I've really enjoyed doing that podcast with you. I, Any questions? Well, thing again is we think of, right, let's write a story involves you picking up that pen and starting to write. But you need that inspiration first. So you need to listen to someone's story. And the more multi-century you make it, the more that child's going to really hook into that. And he talks about pine forests and jungles. Do your children understand what a pine forest is, what a jungle is? Have they been there? Have they seen the visuals? So when you're doing that, is having those visuals on the whiteboard of different forests, helping them think about Because that's the thing, when you see it, you can add bits in. But if you're starting with a blank sheet, you've got nothing. Can they draw a picture? And if you do all of that bit work first and thinking about what's that depth, what's that thing, you do all of that's the story writing, that's getting it in their head. The actual bit of writing it down is just recording that story. Mm. The story has to be there first. Mm. And I think if you've experienced it, you're going to find it easier to write it. And I know we've spoken about Australia before, but I went into a tropical rainforest in Australia. And I remember this enormous fern that was millions of years old. And just standing there thinking, oh my goodness. And we had to walk up these buttress roots. And we'd walked for ages. And I said to my sister, I'm really hungry. You know what she did, don't you? She said, have a boiled egg. It's what your mother would have done. So I'm walking up these buttress roots a bit like a ladder. She throws this boiled egg at me. And you know, when you eat a boiled egg and you get it stuck in your esophagus. So I'm going up these buttress roots. I go, <clears throat> and I got stuck halfway up because I had to digest the boiled egg. So I, that's what I remember about the tropical rainforest and the beautiful plants and the smells and the damp. And you could experience that and you just remember it and you have that visualization of what it was about. The boiled egg and eating it, that's an experience because it get that's again, it's those bits you really helps to tie in if you've eaten a boiled egg and, and got I need a drink type yeah, thing. Yeah. Again, it, having that experience really hooks you in. Where if you're literally just smiling at someone, go eat a boiled egg, it got stuck in my throat, you're going, I've never you have to have experienced that to really hook in. And it's about how it made you feel. Yeah. I was lucky enough to go to Australia many years ago. I was literally there for two days. It was a really weird experience. But I filled my two days. I had mm. a day of work and a day of not work. Good. And that day of not work, I got so many activities in. And I'm going, I can't go to Australia without going in the beach. Mm. Yeah. And it's on the East Coast, north of Brisbane. And I went to the beach and I'm going, there's no lifeguard. Mm. And... I'm really quite worried. And I'm literally, I sat there for 20 minutes watching people go in. Five people went in, five people came out. Six people went in, six people came out, two people. Everyone who went in came out again. It's going to be safe. And I went in the water and I was there. And then I saw some swells in the water and I'm going, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> did you see any fins? No, I did along? not see a fin. But that sort yeah. of thing is, is, if I said Australia and going to the beach, if you understand where sharks live, mm. you're going to know I'm talking about mm. sharks. I have not mm. explicitly said it, mm. but Australia and a beach, it's implied. Mm. So again, do when you're saying these things, do children get that implication? Do they have that background knowledge to understand why I was worried about going in the sea? It's like, but I go in the sea all the time. Yeah, but it's there. It's exactly the same. 
but we've all seen Jaws. We've all seen mm. those films. We've all seen mm. those documentaries and stuff. And it just, even though it really won't happen, it's that worry is in there and that's what you worry about. But we have all those experiences as adults which help us really get into those stories and mm. really imagine. And our children just don't have those experiences. They don't have that information to draw on. Um, and adding visuals, adding those centuries, and as you were playing with the leaves, you kind of broke them a bit, and I got a whiff mm. of the forest. It was brilliant. Mm. It's like, oh, nice. But that's again, you've got to have those experiences. If you can't, how can you give them those experiences in school? That's really, and that's saying multi sensory gives you all of that. And if you can really get that in them, and we're talking story writing, but also multi sensory teaching and everything, if you, yeah. you can get that in and get those senses working, the learning is going to come. Excellent. So thank you for coming on the show today, Susie. Thank you very much, Dan. I've really enjoyed it. I never know what to expect. <laughs> I'm going to nickname you the Spanish Inquisition because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. We'll be putting links to the show to things we've mentioned. So I'm going to see if I can find a link to the book, but I've also put links to Susie's books and some multi-sensory teaching at home links that Susie's given me and also putting Susie's Twitter and email so you can get hold of Susie and you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast or on our website thank you for listening if you haven't subscribed click on that subscribe button you'll find that on the website to access all the different places you can listen to us and please follow us on social media at the Sendcast on Twitter the Sendcast on Facebook and the Sendcast on Instagram kept it really simple there and if you want to get in touch, let us know your thoughts, suggest topics or anything else, please message us on social media or send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And if you have enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into Sendcast Sessions, our online CPD that you can purchase for your school. Each session is £10, but it is yours forever. So you can build up a library of CPD around SEND that everyone in your school can access. We also run our free send briefings twice a year designed to help everyone keep up to date with the changes going on in the world of SEND. Head over to the Sendcast website to find out more about the Sendcast sessions. And as I said, as always, you'll find a link to that in the show notes if you have no idea where to go. So it's all really, really easy. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. This is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me and Percy Pig. Bye, Percy. Bye.